You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Happy Friday. Uh, welcome to Fearless with Jason Whitlock. I am Jason Whitlock, the captain of this, well, I guess I'm the general of the Fearless Army. Uh, the weekend is here, baby, and I'm going to send us off into the weekend with an absolute banging show. Uh, look, Delano Squires, there's a reason I call him the smartest man on the show. Uh, you know, I think it was yesterday or the day before, I was joking with Shamika, like, oh, I think she's trying to take uh, the title from Delano. And Delano probably overheard that comment or was told about that comment. And so you know what Delano did? He wrote the best column, in my view, that he's ever written uh, for The Blaze. It's, and so it's a tremendous column. I'm going to get into it with Delano, and it's his explanation about being a black conservative and what his agenda is. As a black conservative, you're accused of a, a lot of different things, and basically his agenda is expressing a biblical worldview, period, end of story. And I read this, and I was like, hey, is he ghostwriting my own thoughts? And that, that's not why I thought it was tremendous, but it was just so concise, so clear, so on point that... We're going to start the show talking with the smartest man on the show, Delano Squires. But the second half of the show will be just as good. We're going to bring on Ethan Strauss. Uh, he does a substack called The House of Strauss. He made his bones as an NBA writer uh, covering the Golden State Warriors. He's worked at ESPN. He's worked for The Athletic. He's now struck out on his own. And Ethan Strauss writes some of the best, most thought-provoking stuff you can find on the internet as it relates to the sports world. Ethan Strauss is tremendous. He wrote a piece uh, last week, about a, about a week ago, breaking down the Adrian Wojnarowski, Brian Windhorst feud over at ESPN, over the uh, James Harden, Ben Simmons trade kerfuffle or whatever, the who's going to break the news. and It's a tremendous piece on Adrian Wojnarowski and what's really going on in the sports media landscape. Ethan Strauss is a big thinker, a big writer, and he also writes some very provocative stuff about LeBron James we'll get into. Uh, he wrote a piece in late December, I believe it was, where he talked about why LeBron James isn't connecting the way LeBron James wants to, off the court, in pursuit of being the Muhammad Ali of this generation. Uh, we'll get into all that and more with Ethan Strauss. You do not want to miss the Ethan Strauss interview. Great stuff on ESPN and Adrian Wojnarowski and, and some kind of real inside sports media stuff that you'll find very fascinating. 
Then we'll get into a conversation about LeBron James. But we're actually going to start today's show. Uh, Delano has started such a massive, huge fire with his own column that uh, we're going to go straight out to Washington, D.C. and bring in the smartest man on the show and let and have a full-throated conversation about the piece uh, that he wrote today, the first paragraph of the piece. One of the most fascinating <laughs> and frustrating things about being a black person with views described as conservative is the constant assumption that you are trying to advance a nefarious, self-serving agenda. Uh, Delano, uh, I don't know if I can do an explanation of your column justice. I, I almost just want to sit back and let you read it on air. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> man, I, I just, I thought this piece was tremendous. Uh, so much of it relates to me when I, I Two weeks ago, I had a conversation uh, with a very good friend of mine who lives out in New York, and and I'm, he's mixed race, he's half Puerto Rican, half white, uh, and I was trying to explain. He he thinks there's some great advantage in seeing both sides, and you know, Jason, you, you don't criticize both sides the way you used to, mm. and blah blah blah. And I'm like, nothing's changed with me, man. I have a biblical worldview, and there just happens to be one side of the group that seems far more out of alignment with God and his will for us than the other side. And so I just keep pointing out, like, hey, man, this isn't consistent with my biblical worldview. Anyway, I don't want to distract from that. Please give us an explanation, a summation of your column today. Sure. Um, again, thank you for having me on, Jason. It's, uh, I was motivated to write this because um, during you know, the past week when I've been going back and forth with some folks about hip hop and its um, contributions to American society and particularly to black culture, some person responded to me that you know, my contention that hip hop has normalized and glorified or commodified you know, violence among black men and the degradation of black women he said, this is a lie and indicative of someone with an agenda. Now, as usual, he, he didn't offer any counter, no substantive argument. There rarely ever is. And, and, and my, first, uh, my first reflex was to defend myself. So I don't have an agenda. But I, I thought about it. I said, no, I actually do have an agenda. Um, and, and I want to apply maximum pressure um, in the culture, in the policy space, online, wherever I go, to advance that agenda. And, and that agenda, and I said it in the piece, is fairly straightforward, is to apply a biblical worldview to matters of policy and culture in order to uh, affirm the, the human dignity um, and the inherent sense of worth uh, that is in all of us as people, black, white, you know, regardless of our race, color, ethnicity, because we are created beings, because we are created by, by God. And, this is really a Genesis 127 agenda, right? Where it says that, you know, man, man is created in, in the image of God. And it, it lays out that God is creator, um, that God created male and female, and that each of us is stamped with the, uh, the Latin term is the imago Dei, right? So that that, that sense of, of dignity and worth because um, of who created us, not what we look like, not what we can do, and this is this is why my positions. I can write about anything from um, slavery, abortion, sex work, 
criticize hip hop because all of those things make human worth and value conditional on what a particular individual can do in service of another um, or what a particular individual keeps another from doing. So for me, I, I, just, I just want to say that clearly um, and, and, you know, as it relates to race, you know, I, I go through different groups. I talk about how I come into opposition with black liberals. And a lot of that is, is fairly straightforward. You know, we, we talk about how the, the left and, and particularly the black left, the black elite leadership class, how they push all sorts of self-destructive you know, ideologies from um, undermining the nuclear family to uh, eliminating standards in education in, for the sake of equity. But, but the black conservative piece was also important because I think a lot of times people think that all black conservatives want the same things. And there, there's a group that is really out for you know, economic empowerment and political representation. And those things are, are certainly good things. But I, I came into a little bit of opposition to those folks because these were the people justifying the behavior um, and the, the, the content and the contributions of hip hop artists, rappers for the better part of 30 years because you know they've given X amount of dollars to some charitable organization. And for me, the, the, the defining piece and defining line in, 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 my, um, in my column is, there's no amount of money that you could offer me that would convince me to sexualize my, my wife or my daughter or, or gangsterize my sons for a willing audience. And as I said, temptation may come to, to my family and to our door, but I'll be damned, and I said literally, if I'm the one that feeds them into the devil's mouth. Um, so I, I wanted to make that, that part crystal clear. So if, if we get to the point where the folks on the right, the black conservatives say, no, we, we should support X person or X initiative because they're, they're pouring a lot of money in our, into our community. But what also comes with that is a degraded self-image that I, I won't be on board. Just the same way if conservatives in general, the broader sort of conservative establishment becomes the party of drag queen story hour. I'll, I'll just set out every election or I'll, I'll vote for whoever's the most conservative person in a, in a given election and I won't feel any particular way about it because I'm not here to advance anybody's you know, political agenda. As I said in the piece, every group that I named, and I also named evangelicals, every group that I name is concerned with amassing uh, you know, political influence, right? That's why they always talk about speaking truth to power. My agenda is to, is to speak truth to error. Mm. I, I, I like that line, uh, speaking truth to error. And, and I think one of the things I've said to people is like, hey man, I'm trying to have a conversation with black people about, mm. because America's having this con constant conversation for entertainment, for ratings purposes, for whatever, they have this constant conversation going on about black people and about the black community and, and how we move forward and how we advance. And, and, and I'm trying to specifically say to all people but black people in particular, because that's the conversation America keeps hosting, is that look, 
if you embrace the in principles withheld within the Bible, mm. that's going to move us forward. And 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 are you not listening to the people that you're uh, teaming up with on the political thing? They never talk about what the Bible says and what God mm. wants done. And 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 perhaps that's why we're on this hamster wheel of of a lack of success or I don't know how you, uh, 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 the destruction of our family. We're not making progress. We're on a hamster wheel. We're going nowhere because we keep divorcing ourselves from a biblical worldview that they have framed as racist and conservative. And mm. so uh, I, I saw the debates you were having with uh black conservatives over Twitter. And, and, and one thing that I've seen from black conservatives is, is that they're removing the Bible and religion from their worldview, and they practice a race religion as well. Mm. And, and, and anything that we do, anything you might do in correction of us, well, or are you correcting white people? Right. And, and, and I, I sit there and go, well, I'm not white. Most of my friends happen to be black, even though I don't care what color my friend, but this is like asking someone, are you correcting the kids in the other house? Well, those aren't my right. kids. <laughs> and so, man, I, I, I loved your column. Uh, I, I'm sure we haven't, there's some other layers in there that I would like for you to, to address. So I'm kind of want to yeah. throw the football back to you. <laughs> so, so I think what you mentioned about, um, you know, the biblical worldview is, is so important. And, and I said in the column, um, a lot of people have heard the phrase, you know, that politics are downstream from culture, right? So the things that are accepted in culture are eventually going to be sort of codified through through our law and public policy. But sociology is also downstream from theology. And what you believe about God ultimately will determine what you believe about man. And that's why I said one of the groups um, that I also uh, focus in on are evangelicals. And when I, when I say, when I use that term, I'm talking about people who would sort of describe themselves as, um, you know, biblically conservative. So these are people for whom the Bible has authority. They believe that, generally speaking, that it's inerrant and it's infallible, right? So these are people who, who, as I said, are both politically and theologically conservative, generally speaking, black or white. And they're, and they're people in both camps. And I've just noticed over the years just how they have taken on some of the same positions as liberal atheists. These are people who um, reject sort of the biblical teachings on morality for Marxist teachings on materialism. And the way it works out for, for the black ones is they, they end up sounding like, you know, Ibram Kendi. And one person in particular, a guy named Jamar Tisby, actually works for Ibram Kendi. He, he's, his whole shtick is about fighting racism. Every time I see him on, on, on YouTube, he's telling white people how to fight racism in their, in their church. And, and in between that is sprinkled, you know, sort of, uh, calls for, for reparations of one, one sort or another. 
and even though I think he, he often gets his history correct in terms of the role that the white evangelical church has played either sort of advancing or protecting the status quo as it relates to, to, to racism, um, his present analysis and certainly what it means for the future is completely off because he, he takes, again, the same position that you're either racist or you're anti-racist in, in, in the way Kendi frames it. And it's important to tie him to Kendi because Kendi is a person who appropriates claims about Christianity to his own religious dogma. Kendi believes that racism is death, anti-racism is life. The Bible teaches that sin is death and that life is found in Jesus Christ. So when you have an evangelical who serves as a bridge between the, the church and particularly black folks in the church and someone like Ibram Kendi, that's, that's important. And then along with people like, like Tisby are an entire collection of white knights who think it's their job to tell the unwashed masses of, of white conservatives why they need to say Black Lives Matter and they need to, to advance the cause of anti-racism. And my thing is this, I, 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 I see these people as brothers and sisters in Christ. The only thing they owe me is what the Bible says that they do, which is, which is to love me as a brother. Their version of ethnic uh, paternalism and partiality, I have no use for. I have no use for white guilt. It is the emptiest of calories. I can't do anything with it. It, it gives me neither energy um, or, or encouragement. So these are people who will write 3,000 word blog posts to explain that when a black man commits a crime, it's because of deep systemic inequity and systemic racism. But when a white man commits a crime, it's because of white privilege and personal defect. So, so white people have individual agency, but black folks do not. And, and it always seems that the people who are, who are called on to rescue the black masses who can't move forward because of systemic racism are these same, are these same white folks. So all of these groups to one extent or another view the solution to all problems black people face as bigger government and better white people. And I reject that straight out. I have, I have no use for it. Um, I'm advancing a dark night agenda. These people are, are advancing a damsel in distress agenda. And as a grown man, I just, the, the, the notion that somebody else is gonna come along and rescue me, or when they see my kids, they, they, their, their inclination is to pat them on the head and say, I, I know how hard you've had it and you know, you're oppressed. And I, I mean, it, it, Jason, if I wasn't saved, I would slap some of these people, honestly, because not to hurt them, but to slap some sense into them. Yeah. To say, look, we are both created beings. You and I stand toe to toe as equals. You, you, you are not above me. Your words do not matter more than mine. Your, your thoughts and behaviors do not, do not matter more than mine. But for some reason, there are people on the left and the right, black and white, Christian and atheist, who are convinced that a black man who is pro-marriage, pro-family, anti-degradation, anti-porn, anti-abortion is somehow doing the bidding of, of white massa pulling the strings behind the scene. And I just think it's ridiculous. Delano, I was in an interesting conversation last night uh, with a very good friend of mine from Kansas City. I've got some friends in from Kansas City uh, over at my house last night. Deep conversation and friend of Marcus Queen, 
he's actually here at the studio. We call him Mac. I've known him for nearly 20 years, 15, at least 15. Uh, he, he, he runs a uh, technology uh, organization out of Kansas City. Very smart guy, uh, very Christian, very based and grounded. He made the, and if, if I had been prepared to read your column this morning, I, I would have instantly thought, because Max here, he's in the studio, I would have mic'd Mac up and had him right here, <laughs> had the cameras all set. So I'm gonna have to try to represent his argument a little bit here. But, but one of the things he, he stressed to me last night in our conversation is that he thinks you and I and others are making the mistake as Christians, as believers, that we should eliminate the words black and white from our vocabulary. That mm. it, it, it's, it's a misguided, it, it's, it's not what Jesus and, and God wants for us. He, he doesn't refer to us that way. Uh, you know, again, he's, you're, we are his creation, all of us, and, and, and Matt goes out of his way to greet everyone as brother, and he's basically brother in Christ. Mm. And, and <clears throat> last night we were having this discussion and I was saying, get it, I'm in agreement with you. I, because I, I, that, that is part of my worldview in terms of, of, I'm not thinking about being the black, best black person I can be. I'm thinking about being the best representation of Jesus Christ that I can be, and I know I fall way short, I'm trying to be the best representation of my parents and all the people who have invested in my success and made sacrifices for my success. That's primarily my parents, my dad's past now, that's my brother and, and my sister, but there's a whole host of people, many of them that don't look like me, who invested in my life, and I'm trying to, again, honor Jesus with my life and honor these people who have invested in my life. And, and race has nothing to do with it. And so, I, I, again, I think he made an argu a sound argument, but I argued back like, hey man, I'm trying to communicate to a group of people who have been bathed in the black-white discussion. Mm -hmm. And so I, I gotta speak their language in order to right. shake them up to see the truth of the gospel. It, anyway, I wanted your reaction. I, I think the last part of what you said is, a, is an excellent point. I, I sort of, I put it, um, I, I use the term HSL, right? Humanity is a second language. So anybody who's ever gone to school with a lot of people who don't speak English is familiar with ESL. English is a second language. And the, the point of it is to communicate with someone in, in the tongue in which they're more comfortable with the hope of pulling them over and being able for them to be able to master English. HSL is the same thing, right? To your point, we, we speak in the language of race because we know in this country, you can't get away from that. And, and there's an extent to which, you know, I, I know sort of conservatives feel pressure to talk about things from the perspective of race and to tell the black community, quote unquote, this is what I'm going to do for black people because that is often how you know, it's certainly how the left operates. And when one group names you specifically and another tries to avoid s saying your name, so to speak, it comes off as if the second group doesn't really want you around. So 
my, my goal is always to is to and and part of being a good communicator is knowing your audience. So my my goal is to say things to my audience, and sometimes I'm t- I'm I have a broad audience, everyone I'm speaking to. Sometimes I'm speaking to men. Sometimes I'm speaking to Christians. Sometimes I'm speaking to black folk. Sometimes I'm speaking to black Christian men. Um, and I try to be clear in terms of what audience that is. But ultimately, as I said, I always come back to this to the same foundation, which is we're all created beings. When I'm at home, Jason, I don't I don't describe myself to my wife or my kids as. I don't tell my kids, well, as your black father, I insist or I want you to do X, Y, and Z because I'll be silly, right? I'm a dad. I'm a husband. I'm a Christian. Um, you know, I'm a writer. I'm a thinker. I'm a son. Um, you know, I'm a brother. So I, I, I get what Mac is saying. And, and ultimately, I, I agree with him. I hope in 50 years we don't we don't see every other conversation started with, well, as a insert you know, sort of arbitrary identity. Uh, as a black man, I believe, I, I, I would like people to get to the point where we can speak a common language, but as long as we're here where we are now, I'll, I'll speak it in a way that people can receive it. And the other thing, honestly, one of the things that's most frustrating to me is, and, and I said it the other day, is how feline many of our conversations are in the public space, right? And when I say feline, I mean, laced with passive aggressiveness, with euphemism, with doublespeak, with plausible deniability. Oh no, I, I didn't really say that. I didn't, re- I didn't really mean that. I, I prefer my commentary to be canine. I, I, prefer, I prefer it to, 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 I prefer to say exactly what I mean with the clearest, simplest language possible. Um, anybody who watches like police, you know, programs will, you know, sometimes the police will come to execute a raid and there's a guy, he has a battering ramp, and he hits the front door because they're coming straight through the front. There's another class of people. Now, these are typically the crooks and the thieves and the criminals who like to peek in the side window and, and sneak in through the back door. Jason, you and I are not backdoor guys. Never have been, never will be. So, so when, when I speak, I want to be clear about the things that I'm saying. And that's why I said, like, this is my agenda. I'm not going to run from it. I'm not, I'm not going to hide it. Um, and to the extent that it intersects with race, I think it's good to be clear on that. But I, I want to say one, thing, one other thing really quickly. Um, I, towards the end of my piece, I addressed the group that I think most black people, whether on the left or the right, Christian or atheists, think black conservatives should talk about, which is their sort of conception of the white racist, right? And this could be anyone from your garden variety Trump voter to your uh, skinhead, neo-Nazi, you know, proud boy, boogaloo boy types, right? Th- these are categories that are not particularly precise, but the, the left and the media has done a great job of painting everyone who even considered voting for Trump as a white supremacist. So my, my thing is this, we're at a point now in our culture where anything that has even the slightest whiff of anti-black racism is opposed almost universally by every sector of society, by corporate media, um, by big tech, by big business, by academia. Uh, a lot of people you know, have been seeing the, the video of, of the two teenagers in a fight in New Jersey and how when the police come, they, they grab the black kid who's on, who's on the bottom, actually, he's not even the aggressor at the time, and they put him in cuffs. And for a lot of people, this is an example of, of you know, 
police bias and, and maybe even police brutality. And my thing is, as terrible as that scene um, uh, looks, a couple things come to mind. One, we only hear about it because of the racial dynamics. If it was two black teens or two white teens, this would never be a national story. But two, you see the response from the broader society, right? Which is, when it, when it looks like a black kid is being mistreated by, by white people, particularly white people in authority, all of us raise our voice in unison and say, this is not right. And that to me is a sign of tremendous progress in our country. The problem is the, the, the sort of cultural uh, border patrol or, or, or the people who are at the door at the, at the club, the bouncers, they know how to identify the belligerent drunk who wants to get in and start a fight. They tell him, you can't come in here. But they let in the, all the assassins, right? It's like the movie Collateral with Tom Cruise. He, he looked good with Cruise and Jamie Foxx. He looked good, he wore a nice suit. He had a, a gold, you know, silver pistol, and he went in there, wherever he went, people end up dying. Our cultural border patrol has no discernment. So they, they, they're good at keeping out the white racist that they think is conservative, but they let in the, the, the black liberal with, um, you know, Marxist views and feminist views. They, they let in the white liberal who argues that wanting to have more black children born is a, is a form of white supremacy. So my thing is this, just if, if, you, if, if we ran a hospital, we would triage based on the people who need the most immediate attention and have the most severe conditions. So part of what I'm doing is saying, in, a, in an era with an innumerable sort of uh, ch- choices in terms of what to focus on, I wanna focus on the things that are important but also that I think are most able to sort of work their way into the culture and cause us trouble. And right now, conservatives are, uh, not conservatives, white racists are sidelined. CNN would never run a headline that says, the, the most dangerous and violent person in America is an angry black man. But they will run that headline when it says that that person is an angry white man, and they did run that headline. So, so that's why my focus and attention is on the people who get let into the club, not the ones who are kept out of it. Yeah, uh, we'll let the mass shooters in. Uh, <laughs> the guy with the six shooter with one bullet in right. the gun, we can stop him in a heartbeat. I wanna play the video from Bridgewater, I believe New Jersey, uh, so that people know what we're talking about. I, I think we have that video of the, the cops uh, subduing the 14-year-old eighth grader and uh, ignoring the white high schooler who seemed to be the instigator uh, of, the, of the incident. I, I'm glad you brought it up uh, because I was going to ask you about it. Uh, do we have the video ready? Yeah, I, I, I think we had the video ready. Let's play the video.
Yo, it's because he's black. Racially motivated. To your point, the people on the scene start calling it out. What what's going on? And and, and I, I really I don't. It's impossible to defend those police officers, particularly I must say, call up the female police officer. Uh, 14-year-old boys being subdued by a male cop. There was no reason for this woman to leave the other suspect and to right. jump on this kid's back. Uh, and so I do think, you know, these cops need to be fired and or disciplined. It's not a good look. It's, it's, it's an inappropriate overreaction to two kids fighting in the mall. Uh, and I, I would say, and, and again, when the show's over, I'm going to get into this with Mac. But, but I th people will say, this is why we talk about race, because look, what, it's hard to talk about this issue without talking about the color of these kids' skin and without assuming that, damn, the reason why they jumped on the back of the one kid, what is the deciding factor? And it's hard not to say race is the deciding factor in the decision-making of those police officers. I mean, I mean you're, you're right, it is hard. Um, and I think you used the key word, right? Which is, we all assume. And, and I, I try to, to limit my assumptions wherever possible. Um, one of, the, one of the, the, the key things right here is that it's two kids fighting and two officers res respond. It's hard to say what would have happened if the male officer went for the white kid first, right? The male, generally speaking, you know, men are stronger and, and more aggressive. He, he may have very well, if he got the white kid first and pulled him off, he may have very well put him to the ground and put him in cuffs. It looked like the, the female officer was just wanting to separate them. Um, obviously, none of us know how that would have played out. But, but for me, part of what, you know, uh, applying a biblical worldview looks like is to try to apply the same set of principles regardless of the circumstance. And I agree with you, it, it looks terrible, but it only looks terrible because of the racial dynamics that are involved. And as I said, if it was two white kids and we saw the video, we would have said, oh man, I wonder why the, the second guy got cuffs on him. And then we would have shrugged our shoulders and moved on and watched something else. But I think we're, we're at a point now where anything that has sort of a hint of racial bias, um, regardless of what the evidence looks like, uh, is, is something that we all speak out against. And, and, I, and just let me be clear, if these officers did in fact um, act because of bias, I do think that they should be, should be disciplined and whether that means termination, I'm not sure. It certainly should be additional training. And that training may not be anti-bias training, it may just be, look, when you have two kids fighting, mutual combat, because by the time they got to the scene, the, the two guys were fighting. It wasn't one was standing over the other with, with a handgun or something. Your first, your first move should be to separate them. And if, and if you can get them separated and calm down, there's no need to put cuffs on anybody. If it's mutual combat and, and you're not going to arrest both of them, don't put one in cuffs and let the other one walk free. That could be part of the training, right? Um, but, but for me, I'm, I'm, I, I always sort of temper my reaction because I know exactly where these things could go. And in the column I mentioned, our society is so um, opposed to even the, the slightest hint of racism that they, they turned um, 
the, the three guys that Kyle Rittenhouse shot, right, Rosenbaum, Huber, and Kreutzkreutz, into the, the, the three civil rights workers who were killed in, in Mississippi in 1964, right? Goodman, uh, Schwerner, and Cheney. And they, they in, in a perverse sort of irony, end up equating three white guys, to, at least two of whom have felonies, including one who's a convicted child molester, and they almost propped them up on the same level as, as three men, two of whom were white, who were white, who were working to sign up black folks um, to vote in the Deep South. And, and they turned a trial that involved basically four white guys into a racial justice issue, right? And that's why, again, for me, part of my agenda is to apply the same principles equally across any situation, regardless of who is involved. Um, and it's also to, to, to never encourage, defend, or promote in another man's house what I wouldn't allow in my own. And, and those two things are, are two of the supporting structures that, that you know, hold up all the other parts of, of my agenda. I think you make a good point in terms of, hey, assumptions. Assumptions make fools of all of us. And so, uh, incompetence is always a possibility uh, when people make bad decisions. Right. Uh, incompetence has made me make some bad decisions. And so, you know, if, and you're right, if those were two white kids, two black kids, we'd watch it and go, well, dang, the cops seem to overreact to one kid or the other, and we would keep it moving. And, and, and that's why, and again, I, this topic, you know, Neb Trump were in office, they, this would be the <laughs> lead story on all the major networks right. and look, I don't know how it's gonna be handled. Social media seems to be so far not jumping all over it and, and playing it up massively. Uh, and I think that's because of who's in office. But <clears throat> if, if my perspective was like, yeah, this is bad. Yeah, these cops need to be disciplined and que certainly questioned. Uh, but no one got hurt here. I saw this kid interviewed later. He sounded perfectly fine. Uh, you know, bad mistake, uh, but let's keep it moving because much worse, and I'm sorry to say it, but just much worse things happen that, mm -hmm. you know, we don't seem to get emotional about. Uh, we will hear stories about a four-year-old kid getting shot laying in his bed, stray bullet or out playing in a playground, and we'll keep it moving and act like there's nothing to see here. This kid survived and, and Ben Crump's now on the scene, so the family's gonna get some money. Uh, so they just cashed their lottery ticket without their son getting hurt. And so before I say anything else inappropriate, I'm gonna move on. I wanna ask you one last thing, Delano, because sure. I saw you tweeting about it and I found it interesting. Leah Thomas, the man that's swimming for the uh, University of Penn's women's swim team, uh, won a championship last night in the Ivy League. I think maybe the 500 freestyle. Uh, he won by seven seconds. Uh, I, 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 find, I find this entire thing just fascinating, disturbing, uh, when, when I think about the assault on truth, mm. this is front and center to me that 
you know, and did an interview, and we'll play it this weekend on Apple, and you guys should should watch it. It's tremendous with Dr. Robert Zelenko. He's been at the forefront of some uh, alternative ways to treat COVID, but but he's also just a man of God that talked about, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah. He says people misinterpret that in the Bible in terms of, well, why did God destroy it? There was sin everywhere. It wasn't just, Sodom and Gomorrah wasn't the only place in the world that sin was running wild. But he said the difference was they codified the immorality into their laws and basically started justifying the immorality. And that's what I look, when I see Leah Thomas and what we're doing, we're making rules Mm -hmm. and laws and (laughs) establishing customs that are in complete objection to God. I get that this man feels like a woman, but that doesn't mean we should all pretend he is one particularly when he still has a penis and he's out here swimming against women. I just, this is the assault on truth and and the big flaming example of like, we're creating a fantasy world, uh, uh, the devil's fantasy world. Mm. I mean, there's so much going on here, but Jason, I I think when you show that, that image of Leah Thomas um, on the podium and those two girls next to him. My, my, my response to seeing, you know, him, him winning the championship basically was focused on those two girls because what we're doing as a society, obviously we're departing from truth, right? Obviously we're ingesting lies that are being propagated by, again, when I'm talking about having a function a functional bouncer at the door that are being propagated by big tech and big media and big government. But what we're doing is that we're telling those girls that all of the hard work and the dedication and the discipline that they show is meaningless. And we are grinding them down on underneath the, the boot of deception and lies and forcing them to smile on a podium, looking up at, at Leah Tom, William Thomas, and having and making them think that what they're going through is okay. And I can't think of anything worse that we could be doing to a generation. Uh, Jason, I, I wrote a column last week called um, Feminists Hate Women, period. And part of my argument is that the, the people who say that they're speaking for women and they're fighting for women and are completely silent here. And, and they want to erase all of the things that make um, women unique. And what we're doing here, is, and as I said in that piece, is that we are prioritizing confused sons over confident daughters. And we, don't, we have no idea what the long-term impact of that is going to be. But I can tell you the short-term impact is to demoralize these girls and to, to leave them feeling unprotected um, and, and sort of uncovered in a way that, again, we, we don't know what, what, the, what the long-term has in store, but I, I would... And, and this is one of the reasons why it's important for men to speak up, because if you are not the type of man who can um, speak up and 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 correct, whether let's let's just say a, a man dealing with his daughter, right? 
he thinks what she's wearing is too provocative. Let's say she's a teenager. She's 16. He doesn't like what she's wearing. But he feels afraid to speak, to say anything to her because he's like, well, I, it's, it's, it's modern day, you know, who am I to say? She's her own person, so on and so on and so forth. And it's one of those things where if you won't speak up to the people you love, then you definitely won't speak up for them. And that's how you get men in the culture. And, and I mentioned, you know, I had an exchange with Tony Reale, who seems like a, a great guy. And every time I asked him, okay, what would your response be to those two girls who are on the podium and say, look, having a race against a male is unfair. And, and he dodged every time. Well, I would tell them, well, you know, it's great that you got second and third place. And I said, I couldn't think of a more, cower, a more cowardly response from a man. And, and if I would ever say that to my daughter, and she was in that same situation, I couldn't be upset if she lost respect for me. And, and that's, that's one of the things that's so heartbreaking about this is like these girls are crying out and asking people, hey, can you help me? And, and the collective response from the male feminists and the women's liberation leaders is to say, no, we, this is a man's world. We're standing up for Leah Thomas. And all you girls who don't like it need to get in line and just accept that this is the reality. And, and in the same ways that for generations, um, black women have talked about feeling unprotected and, and black children have been unprotected, a lot of white girls are feeling the same thing because in the same way that many of us as black men have not stood up to defend our families, whether through word or deed, a lot of white men are doing the same thing right now. So I'm not surprised, it's only gonna get worse. This, this, this is what you see in the decline of any empire. This type of decadence and, and disconnection from reality, it's, it's an indication that the, the plane is falling, the nose is pointed down, and the pilots have the, 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 the gear stick pushed all the way down to the ground. So I'm not surprised, but it doesn't make it any less disappointing. Delano, I'm gonna end on this note and take the conversation full circle in terms of, and again, I'm gonna continue on with this conversation with Mac and, and mm -hmm. the other friends of mine that are here in town, that uh, this is why I think at the moment, I have to speak in the language that's being used by corporate media and everyone's bathed in, it is because I'm hoping that Leah Thomas, Thomas, and what's going on with this transgender issue, it's so flagrant and it's such an abomination to God that I'm hoping that black, it's going to shake black people up who are the mm -hmm. most reliable, consistent voters of the left who are in support of this transgender thing. This assault on truth is being led by the left, the political left. And we, people with our skin tone here in America, are the most reliable voters for the people empowering this. This yeah. is not consistent with God's will. And if you, I'm hoping it's gonna snap some people out of it like, hey, what are we really doing here? Because I think we think the litmus test for loving God is whether or not people bow down and love us. Mm. And, and I'm saying a mouthful there, 
but people think about it over the weekend. Because we think, oh, someone, if, if we think someone's racist, they can't be a Christian. If they ever use the N-word, they can't be a Christian. If they've ever done anything unfair along racial lines against black people, they can't be a Christian. And I said, well, hmm. hold on, I'm a Christian, and I've used the N-word, and I've done unfair things to some white people. Right. I have. And, 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 and I've said some really horrific things about white people that if we're said out in public, like, wow, and so, and maybe I'm a court, maybe I'm not a court. Well, you're not either, because a lot of these mm. people try. I know them well. I know, they've done the exact same thing, the same sin. So, I, I'm hoping this thing with Leah Thomas is just so flagrant, and that's why corporate media is ignoring it. This is a story among conservative media outlets and conservatives on social. On, on social media, but ESPN's totally, it, it, TV, their most powerful yeah. platform, totally avoiding this topic because they don't want, it, it's such an obvious affront to God, they don't want to put it in people's faces because they don't want people to snap out of them and say, well, hold on, maybe Whitlock and Delano aren't crazy when they keep saying, like, hey man, th this stuff is satanic. So. Mm. Delano, just can, can uh, I, can great I, job. Yeah, please. Can I say something real, real, real quick? Uh, I'll be quick, but I won't hurry. Yeah. Um, I think uh, two, two things really quick. One, the, the corporate media does cover it, but when they do, it's always from the perspective of affirmation. So I think I saw an article in the Times. I didn't read it, but but the, the headline had some, I think the, the piece was trying to say, Leah Thomas is only an issue because he keeps winning, right? And it, it almost framed the issue as, as people who are against this, who actually want girls' sports to be for girls, are just sore losers, right? So, so we know whenever corporate media opens their mouth about this, it'll only be in the, in the place of affirmation. But, but I want to bring it full circle in terms of a biblical worldview and, and the Imago Dei. What we're doing also does not help Leah Thomas or people like him who struggle with gender identity. It is not a sign of love to encourage somebody in lies and it's not a sign, a sign of love to encourage someone to pump themselves full of hormones that can end up sterilizing them and to encourage them to, to mutilate their bodies. When we look at countries in, in the Middle East or Africa who engage in, in, in genital mutilation, particularly for girls, we see that as barbaric. But here in the West, when we start putting kids on, on um, cross-sex hormones and prevent them from having puberty and make them sterile and have 13 or 15 or 16 year old girls cutting off healthy breast tissue or like the kid I am Jazz, Jazz Jennings, who, you know, cuts off his private parts and uses skin from all over his body to create a fake vagina. None of that stuff is loving. None of that stuff is kind. But we are too scared to say those things because um, we, we don't want to get labeled as biggest and transphobe. And, and again, in the same way when it deals with issues of race, if, if me being a black man who promotes the black family makes me a sellout, I'm willing to take that. And if me being a Christian that says, no, your body was created by God and any, any tension you have between mind and body, you need to work on the mind because God has already spoken on the body. I, I'm willing to take that as well. 
Great job, Delano. Uh, we'll see you Thank next you, week. All right. Yep. Uh, good ranchers. It's hard to find companies that you can trust and that share your values these days. But we found one. Good Ranchers makes it easy to get great products and support a great cause at the same time. Good Ranchers is American meat delivered. They source steakhouse quality cuts from farms and ranches across the USA and ship it straight to your door. That's right. All of their beef and chicken is 100% born, raised, and harvested in the USA, which means you can get it an unbelievable quality of food at an affordable price, all while supporting hardworking Americans. Head on over to GoodRanchers.com fearless today to have delicious American meals on your table. Order now with a code fearless to get $25 off your box. Now is the time to support American farms and ranches. They're hurting and you're hungry. Solve both of those problems with a box of American meat. Go to GoodRanchers.com fearless. Good Ranchers. American meat delivered. When we come back, I'm <clears throat> gonna bring on sports writer Ethan Strauss for an interview I've been dying to have. It's one of the smartest guys writing about sports in America right now. Ethan Strauss, next. We must exist in a state of man glorious as we are protected by the red, the white, and the blue. But remember, the mind is the key. The fearless soldier pledges to place God first and foremost in his everyday endeavors of life. We, the fearless army, are one nation under God, indivisible with freedom and a belief in the American dream. The men bold enough to join our movement comprise what we like to call the new dream team. We are leaders of our families, our churches, and of this nation. We reject the seeds of division that are planted by corporate media misinformation. We affirm that all men are created equal and are endowed with inalienable rights, which are granted by our heavenly father. We are bound by honor to accept God's challenge to take the flag and lead, to cherish, to protect, and to nurture the life of our unborn seed. I am a fearless soldier, so shed no tears for me. I am not a victim. I am the man that God made me to be. Amen. All right, welcome back. Time for an interview I've actually been looking forward to for a couple of weeks. Uh, Ethan Strauss, he has a substack called The House of Strauss. He writes mostly about NBA-related uh, issues. He writes very fascinating, thought-provoking pieces. It's not a person that's looking for X's and O's. It's actually someone examining the culture around the NBA and the stars in the NBA and the media people in the NBA. He just wrote something about Adrian Wojnarowski that uh, last week that got a lot of attention about how Adrian blew the James Harden, Ben Simmons trade. Uh, but I want to actually start out talking to Ethan Strauss about Ethan Strauss because I'm kind of irritated at myself 
that I'm just really understanding how talented uh, this young sports writer is, and I want to know how I missed it. Uh, Ethan, uh, welcome to Fearless. Uh, you certainly are fearless on your Substack, and and maybe even with your decision making. The the first thing I I, I gotta ask Ethan, uh, we'll start with a real simple question. You look sixteen. How old are you? <laughs> I'm thirty six. I'm thirty six. I was told wow. recently that I could. I could be in that range where it could be in the 40s. It could be 25. But uh, yeah, hey, you know what? Maybe Substack has a rejuvenation uh, capabilities uh, for me. <laughs> it's made me take on a new lease on life, Jason. <laughs> All right. So before we get into some of these fascinating things you've written, I want to I want to understand for my own self and I want the audience to understand a little bit of your background, where you're from. Uh, where'd you go to college? How did you get involved with sports writing? Uh, I went to UC Berkeley, and so I'm out in the Bay Area, and I was watching the We Believe Warriors when I was in college, and that seemed pretty cool. And so just as a little side hobby, um, I enjoyed watching the Warriors, and I heard about a job coming out of college in the NBA, uh, going to New York like so many people do because they're tricked into thinking New York is a little more fun than it is. I feel like every TV show and movie portrays New York as a place where the sun is shining. You know, sex in the city, they're always drinking mimosas out in the sun in the spring. It <laughs> seems idyllic. So I wanted to go out to New York and have fun. And there was a job in the NBA in public relations. So, Jason, my job every day was to wake up at 4 a.m., seven days a week, read literally everything written about the NBA – and send a memo to David Stern. That was my job. And it was boring. It was terrible. Uh, no social life. But I came away from it going, oh, my God, there's this whole world out there of people who just travel around and watch basketball and they get paid for it. And that's what they do. And I'm, I'm this idiot who's making 17 grand and trying to pay for a, an apartment in Brooklyn when I could maybe be doing this. So the jumping off point for me, Jason, was a year later after just having this bizarre circumstance where I was at the 2009 NBA draft and I was assigned as the guy to wear a headset and lead Ricky Rubio around as he was just completely crestfallen over falling to the Timberwolves and only wanted to see his family. For hours, I just forced him to do a Patan death march through media interviews. I wrote down everything that night about the experience. I posted it on a blog. It went somewhat viral. I think Deadspin, Deadspin put it on their site and that was a big deal back then. And that kind of got it rolling. And it went from just as a hobby, blogging about the NBA, blogging about the Don Nelson Warriors, to ESPN sniffing around, hiring me, and I became a beat writer. I hope that's not too boring a whole uh, recapitulation of my origin story, as it were. Whoa. So your first job as a sports writer was at ESPN? Well... I wouldn't say it's my first job as a sports writer because I did little odds and ends. I was at Bleacher Report for a spell. But my first job in NBA media was on the other side of it. I was in PR. So I yep. saw the media from the perspective of the NBA. I had those. I was very low on the totem pole. I don't want to make it out like I was some big shot. I was as low as it could get. But I was in there with them figuring out just – okay, what story is a bad story for us? Uh, how do we kill it? Uh, who's good for us? Who's bad for us? And I think that that, in a way, really was my first 
job in sports journalism. It was being the antithesis of journalism. It was about uh, tracking the journalists and thwarting them. My official job title was in media monitor, uh, monitoring, which sounds very Orwellian. Mm. That helps me explain your, because you have a very 360 perspective on the media, and that's because of where you started and then where you transitioned to. You go from working for David Stern to basically working for the television network that's in bed with the NBA. <laughs> and and yep. then at some point, now this job at, with ESPN, was that covering the Golden State Warriors or where did you start there? Yeah, I basically was writing freelance as a hobby. At the same time, Jason, I was at um, Salon.com when it was more of a publication and not as crazy because that was in San Francisco. So I had a choice between doing political journalism and doing this weird thing that had started where I had gotten a credential because nobody cared about the Golden State Warriors back then. You could just see a tumbleweed blowing through the locker room. You know, the only beat what year writers is this? there. We're talking like 2010, 2011. You know, we're talking about that into 2012. So I got to just show up. It was, hey, anybody who wants to show up, here's a credential. You're, you're blogging? Uh, fine. You know, we need somebody here to watch this team. And so I just was having more fun being around the NBA because it's, it's like Hollywood. It's a ridiculous place. And ultimately, I knew I had to make a choice between serious journalism and sports and I chose sports. It just seemed a lot more fun. Now, I, I was occasionally getting a freelance article about the Warriors on ESPN. They liked the, you know, they liked what I was doing. And suddenly the Warriors just take off like a rocket ship. And there's a lot of interest in this guy named Steph Curry. And so they needed somebody, right? They needed somebody. And I had some good people behind the scenes, pulled some strings. Henry Abbott uh, did a good job for me. But I look at it almost like, when you're hungry and you open up the pantry and you're looking around and maybe there are some stale almonds, I almost felt like I was the stale almonds where it's, hey, we don't totally know this guy, but he's going to work for a very modest sum. It's a lot cheaper than trying to convince, I don't know, Jay Adonde to move up to the Bay Area and pay him to do it. Let's see what he can do. And then Mark Jackson gets fired. That's all very interesting. Steve Kerr takes over. And suddenly there's this dynasty taking off like a rocket ship, and I'm right place, right time. Yeah, covering a dynasty will do a lot for your name recognition and legacy and, and bank account. And so at what point did, did you also work at The Athletic? I did. So I uh, was fired in 2017, although maybe it's laid off. It's a little unclear. The aforementioned Adrian Wojnarowski takes over. I think I had written something critical of him in 2010 and how he was covering LeBron. So there are a lot of rumors that maybe he did it. I honestly don't know if he did. I have no idea. Uh, the thing when you're fired is that you're not actually in the room when they make the decision. So I'm, I'm not sure. So I was fired by ESPN, uh, mysterious circumstances. It gave me a chance to kind of take a beat, take a break. Uh, they were paying me uh, while I was fired, uh, after I was fired, just on a two-year contract, which, again, that doesn't seem like a cost-cutting measure. Now, does it, Jason? That doesn't seem like they were saving a lot of money in doing that. 
Um, but anyway, uh, the athletic came calling. I wanted to get back in the mix, and it was just a very fortuitous circumstance. And that was the Kevin Durant. That was the Kevin Durant era, which was its own thing. It was less innocent than the dynasty initially was, but it was very NBA. You know the way that NBA situations unfold. In football, dynasties break apart due to injury, due to age. In the NBA, the dynasty almost always falls apart due to ego. And we see that with Shaq and Kobe. We see that with the last dance looking at the Chicago Bulls. And I think we certainly saw that with the Golden State Warriors and Kevin Durant where there just wasn't enough credit to go around, even if nobody could really beat them if they were healthy. So let me see if I understand this thing at, at ESPN. Is, is Henry Abbott part of the decision-making that brought you to ESPN? And then, if I, my memory serves me correct, uh, when, when Adrian Wojnarowski got brought over to ESPN, Henry's power went down and he got pushed out. So were you, is that accurate? You kind of got caught up in that? Yeah, you are correct on the timeline, only it was a lot faster than that. Uh, I remember... I got a phone call in the morning that Henry had been fired and it was, oh my God, you know, this is crazy. This is devastating. And I didn't think, I had no idea that I, I might get fired. It just would not even occur to me. The Warriors were in the playoffs at the time it happened. So I just figured, well, you know, yeah, that's really tough. I mean, you know, I'm going to have to make good with my new boss, Adrian, I guess. But a few hours later, I got the phone call. I was told that I had been fired and uh, it was a terrible couple hours, but then Jason, I realized something, uh, which is that I hated my job. And I was not admitting to myself that I hated my job because I was so lucky to have the job because of what I just told you. I used to be making 17 grand waking up at 4 a.m. every day uh, in the league office uh, with no hope of doing anything creative or fulfilling. Uh, I had been so lucky to be hired and for the Warriors to take off. I'd been coasting on what they had done. You know, Steph Curry had been paying my rent. So I didn't have a true sense of accomplishment. I just felt very fortunate and Every wedding I ever went to, and you know how this happens, just every guy wants your job. Everyone's like, oh my God, I wish I was doing what you were doing. And so I was hearing that all the time, but at the same time, as it was actually happening, I really didn't like my job. I felt like it would it had become very fast-paced. They wanted an article written immediately afterwards. I know people listening are saying, boo-hoo, you know, I have a terrible job. I don't really care uh, <laughs> about about your misgivings, but it was funny. It was, you know, there it was getting fired, and then two hours later, I felt like a giant weight had been lifted off my shoulders because the beat reporter grind is a hell of a grind, and I was just hoping to be relieved of it. So I have no... You know, it's funny. I write critical things about ESPN, but I legitimately have no bitterness towards them. I'm very happy what happened happened. Even if they were never looking out for me, I'm glad things unfolded as they did. You know, listening to your story, though, I think it's educational for people in terms of how, particularly in the sports media, it kind of mirrors the sports world in terms of, like, Adrian Wojnarowski is basically a new head coach for their NBA coverage. Mm -hmm. And they're gonna surround him with his people or people he's comfortable with. And I, I used to know Adrian a little bit back in the day when I was more out there as a sports journalist. And, and Adrian does hold grudges and Adrian does settle scores. And, <laughs> and so 
this is kind of a little good, a segue into you writing about Adrian and Brian Windhorst and, and how Windhorst, 24, 36 hours ahead of Adrian Wojnarowski on the Ben Simmons, James Harden trade, and Adrian trying to shoot it down and contradict Brian Windhorst. I know Brian better than I do uh, Adrian. Brian and I, I would call friends, certainly friendly back in LeBron's Miami Heat days. Uh, but you know, Adrian has very few friends in this business. Uh, and so I, I, I guess I will start here as it relates to Adrian Wojnarowski. I think some people would say, do you have an ax to grind with Adrian? And is that why you wrote the piece you did that I thought was a terrific explanation of why he blew that trade, Adrian did. He, he, he tried to shoot down Brian's reporting, and then when Brian's reporting proved to be true, he tried to change the narrative, the timeline. They just started talking about this trade <laughs> today. And blah, blah, blah. Anyway, you walk us through, one, do you have a problem with Adrian personally? And then two, help the audience understand, because I, I, you wrote a terrific piece about it, but could you break down that piece you wrote about Adrian and how, why he blew that trade and why ESPN's NBA coverage is actually getting worse with Adrian Wojnarowski as the head coach? Yeah, it's, I think, a little more complicated than an, act, than an axe to grind. I think it's because I've been critical of him I'm on the outs with him. Uh, he's not, I don't want to make him out to be the worst guy ever. I think he, you know, he contains multitudes. There's a tremendous warmth that he has with a lot of people, but he's very binary. Uh, it's very Manichaean. You know, you're either with me or against me. And since I'm filed away as against, there's really nothing I could ever do to get on his good side, right? So that in a way liberates me to say anything I observe versus other people in media who are terrified of him because he's a very powerful figure within ESPN NBA. So I look at it as I don't have an ax to grind, but I would be stupid not to just take advantage of the situation because, frankly, I like doing the content and it makes me money. I mean, I'll just be open. That article that you're putting up there, that made me $30,000 in annualized revenue for one article. You know, it's not I, I don't want to give people an impression that I'm just making tons of money like that on every article. That was an article that really worked for the site. That's not bad for a day's work. Uh, is it an axe to grind? I think I would be stupid not to take advantage of that situation. And I'm not only in it for the money, but it's just a demonstration of it's good business. People behind the scenes in media like talking about Adrian. They're interested in what the hell is going on at ESPN. And it doesn't get aggregated necessarily. You don't see people retweeting it in the industry, but they pay to read about it and they talk about it. And so it serves my interest to discuss it. And yes, I do think that he has hurt their coverage overall. I think we underrate the power of story right now. And we're in this silly era where these companies think that Twitter is everything and everything has to be tailored to Twitter. And the NBA, I think, is the worst offender of that among sports leagues. If you want to look at why the NFL did so much better than the NBA over the last five years, you know, people say, oh, the NBA went woke. I mean, so did the NFL. The NFL does tons of uh, corporate signaling, right? They And they have. 
even more so than the NBA. They've done the the pink gloves during breast cancer month and whatever, you know, for the longest time. But they benefited from the NBA thinking that Twitter was their path to power. It is not an accident that NBA Twitter became such a big thing. They met with Twitter. Adam Silver and former Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey would do an annual conference and they would talk about the merging of their brands. They thought that this would be what would make them popular. And it was the sports bar that was virtual. And it sounded it was great. It was a great idea. I don't even think that I thought anything different back in 2015 when they were doing this happy talk in 2016, where you could read all these crazy articles about how the NBA is going to overtake the NFL. People really believe that. You know, you can read prestigious publications where people are saying that. If you want an example of the media, by the way, being completely out of touch, I, I would put that one up at the top. You know, if you think that the NBA or if you thought at any point that the NBA was going to overtake the NFL in the United States of America, you, you might just need to start traveling around some. You might just need to get out of your apartment. But people thought this. But the problem is that Twitter is poison. That's the issue. And they wanted everybody to ingest it. I was at training camp, I remember, and they would have every player go up to the social media station, authenticate them on Instagram, on Twitter, on everything. They encourage the players to communicate this way with the public. Well, what does that do? These are narcissism contraptions. So it makes the athletes more narcissistic. You're not even managing your brand. You're just leaving it to anybody to talk about, you know, in the virtual sports bar or whatever. So it's just a cacophony of annoying people. You know, the main function of Twitter, in my opinion, is just to allow sociopaths to uh, boost their reputation at the expense of others. And so in the end, the NBA conversation, it detours from the games. It becomes less appealing. The athletes become more inward focused. And all of a sudden, you've got Adam Silver at the Sloan Conference uh, a few years ago going candidly, I might add, and credit to him for being candid. But he's saying, oh, my God, all our stars are unhappy. I, I don't know what to do about it. They're all unhappy. Um, I think that's part of the story of how that happened. It was a technological mistake that ran the NBA ground. Ethan. I got to ask you follow-ups on this, because, but I, why are you so smart? What, 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 seriously. And I said, what are your parents? What, what, were, they, what were their careers? Uh, <laughs> man, you see things really clearly, uh, and you're just 36. What, what, were, you, were you a straight-A student in junior high and high school, magna cum laude in college? Help me out. I don't know if I'm that smart. Writing is the thing that I've just been able to do so I can articulate things well. But God, don't give me a piece of Ikea furniture. I'm going to no, look no, no. pretty you're stupid. Thinking, <laughs> your thinking is on a much higher level. The things you're able to see and discern. Uh, there's not a lot of sports writers. The, the connection you just made about because this is what Twitter has been doing. And I've been preaching this for a long time. They have convinced politicians we can control the thoughts of people. We can deliver votes and elections to you. This is what all the social media, and, and maybe it's because you're from Northern California, or you certainly went to college out there, and so maybe you understand the mindset of these social media companies, but that the whole, the NBA, the whole sports media world and media world thinks Twitter is the end-all, be-all, and the career maker, 
and Adrian Wojnarowski bought it and has profited from it. From because you're right, mm-hmm. he is an employee of Twitter and not ESPN. And I know I'm all over the map here, but this is going to lead to a good question. He's an employee of Twitter. That's his primary thing he thinks about constantly. He's ripping off ESPN. His best work, his only yep. value is on Twitter, and he's ripping off ESPN. Yeah, and it gets fascinating with him because is he a, an employee of Twitter or CAA? I mean, this is an aspect, the corruption involved in NBA journalism, as driven by the Twitter game, I think is so underrated um, because it's less about storytelling, about having that cutout in Sports Illustrated. I think that stuff is, you know, call me corny. I think it's important. I think people understand sports through story, through narrative. I think that was part of why the bubble playoffs in 2020 were not very watched. It's because they didn't have sports writers around telling stories about the players. But the focus shifts to this game of getting the first tweet out there about a transaction. And here's the problem with that. I mean, A, there's no real value added. You're going to learn about it in a press conference, right? Yeah, maybe there's some branding advantage that you have the guy who does it first. But there's this other issue. In order to win that game, you need to suck up to agents. In the case of Adrian, he's represented by an agency, CAA, that represents a lot of players and a lot of coaches. So suddenly you have these incentives that have nothing to do with what the fans want to hear. And suddenly you're hearing about the NBA from the perspective of agents. And agents, they have a job to do. I'm not saying that they're bad. I'm just saying that that is not the fan perspective. No fan has ever watched Drew Rosenhaus, uh, MLB and you know NFL agent. No fan has ever watched that guy behind a podium during a holdout and said, that's my guy over there. That's my guy. Um, once the coverage shifts from the perspective of agents, you're hearing a bunch of excuses for why players didn't get whatever they wanted, uh, why the teams wronged them. And that's just not a perspective that jives with what fans are interested in. Do you think Adam Silver, and you made the point about the players' mental health issues, which I believe are real because when you're addicted to Twitter and you need that dopamine and you want to be liked and retweet, it's a destructive cycle. Do you think Adam Silver realizes that the league made a mistake selling itself to and through Twitter? I think he's heard people who say that. I know that there are executives, I know there are GMs who have read what I have said here and completely agree and are in his ear about it. Now, the degree to which he believes it, I don't know because the NBA seems to always be in on another get-rich-quick scheme. Today, Adam Silver is presenting how the NBA has entered the metaverse. I don't want to cast it aside necessarily because I don't understand it, but it just feels as though they're always looking for some way to have exponential growth that isn't just presenting a better product and marketing it better. They just do anything other than showing us the game and giving us the grandeur of the game like NBC used to do. It's, we're going to go to China. We're going to make money off China. That's our get-rich-quick scheme. doesn't really work, by the way, and has totally run aground. Uh, oh, we're going to do Top Shot. We're going to sell these uh, highlights, these virtual highlights, and that's the way we're going to make money. Uh, we're going to do it with Twitter, and now we're in the, to the uh, metaverse, and it just seems as though in order to boost shareholder value or make the teams more appealing to the people who want to buy them, that has been the approach of Adam Silver, and 
I guess I could be sympathetic to him. I think he's a smart guy, but I don't think he has a feel for the game. I think he's a drab bureaucrat uh, that he he can read. Uh, he can read some charts. He can read what other people are into, but he doesn't have that Don Draper intuitive sense of what people want to see in the way that his former boss, David Stern, I believe, did for any of the flaws Stern might have had. I, dude, you're you're one of the most amazing young people journalists that that I, I've ever talked to. Do you think that there's talk about free agency for Adrian Wojnarowski, Shams, Sharnia? Do, do you think ESPN is capable of snapping out of its Twitter obsession? and might move on, let Adrian Wojnarowski walk? It's a tough one because Jimmy Pitaro, who runs ESPN, um, used to work with Adrian back at Yahoo. And so they are aligned, and there's a, sh- there's a power share right there. Now, I think the bit of tension at ESPN is that it is still a cable TV company. There are people within ESPN who know television. And what they know is that Adrian Wojnarowski isn't good at it. I'm not trying to say that to be mean. I'm not saying it to be mean. It's just true. It's just true. He's bad at it. I'm not saying I'm good at it. If you put me on TV, have me do Malik Andrews' job, I'd probably fail, right? But in the case of ESPN, they're almost pot committed to selling him as this star, uh, this guy almost like Stump the Schwab who knows all the deals, which, by the way, works out awkwardly when he messes up the biggest storyline of the NBA season. But, you know, that's another thing you can read about on the old Substack. So I think if he ever gets pushed out, it's going to come with a lot of momentum coming within the TV uh, aspect of it. Uh, Dave Roberts, who runs a lot of what they do on television and has risen to power along with Stephen A. Smith, uh, who is, of course, excellent on TV, um, knows that Wojnarowski is not good, I think has tried to marginalize him, keep him away from the countdown desk. And so it's just this question of at the cable sports company, how long can you hang on to the guy who's not good at the television? Well, what could end up happening here, it just could come down to money in terms of, mm. because there's all these buckets over at ESPN, as you know. Oh, there's the writing side, and they have a budget. Then there's the TV side, and each individual TV show has a budget, and Adrian needs to plug it. He's got to be available for the NBA Today show with Malika, NBA Countdown with blah, blah. And if these TV people start saying, well, we don't want to pay, as much because the guy's not as good and and then it becomes well his whole budget has to fit on the writing side and the people on the writing side might be sitting there going the guy's writing is basically tweets (laughs) you know he's not really a and adrian's a very talented sports writer he just gave it up to become a, a tweeter Oh yeah, he could write. He could write a column, and I, I just want to interject because I wrote about this. An interesting thing was happening. If you foresee some sort of division there, some sort of divorce, I broke a story about how Adrian was sending his resume, his social media resume, um, out to a bunch of agents and a bunch of potential sources. Um, and the deck said ESPN on it, but after some questioning, it turned out that ESPN had nothing to do with it. It was made by CAA, and it was presenting him as the best on Twitter, the best on Instagram. And it would seem, if you're just hypothesizing, if you're reading tea leaves, 
you do that in theory because you're trying to show your sources that you can provide value to them when you're not at ESPN anymore, that you're your own entity. I know there have been rumors that maybe with one of these gambling sites, one of these fantasy sites wants to get in on a Woj, get in on a Shams. Now, where that's interesting is for them, what is that going to be about? Is that just going to be about the brand or is it going to be about this other thing, which is that in Vegas, they kind of like to know when the injuries happen before everybody else. So I just think that's something to watch. I'm not saying that's going to happen. I'm just saying that that's a possibility for some of the lead newsbreakers. Any chance that Adrian Wojnarowski thinks that his move to ESPN, although good for his bank account, not the best move for him as a journalist? There might be a chance of that. I just, with him, he's always so, he's almost like Daniel Plainview in There Will Be Blood, that he's got this uh, myopia that has served him well, where he's got this burning ambition and he just wants to conquer all that's in front of him. And if you're that mentality, then being at the biggest company is probably best for you. You can have the most influence. But I'm with you. I thought that he could write these these columns. He had a very successful book. I wouldn't be surprised if he wants to get off the grind because the thing about news breaking, Jason, is that I never meet a happy newsbreaker uh, in sports. Maybe you have. You know, I've never met Adam Schefter in the NFL. Maybe he's happy. Uh, Jay Glazer seems happy in the NFL. You know, he seems gregarious. But in the NBA, it it's not a lifestyle. It's not a lifestyle that lends itself to uh, fulfillment. I remember Shams Charania uh, talked about how he gave up playing pickup basketball, which he loved because you can never be away from your phone. Mark Stein, who was at ESPN and got pushed out by Adrian and now is at Substack, uh, once told me that he hadn't been in a movie theater in over 10 years because you, you could miss your phone, so you can't see a movie. I know the people listening are saying, boo-hoo, we don't care, but I do think that informs the decision-making that it's the way you make the most money, which we both think is crazy because you're not really providing that much value, sorry to say it, and look, I want to be clear, I could never do the job. I'm not saying I could do what they do to earn that money. I'm just saying that it's not really serving fan interest, uh, but it's how you get the money, but it comes at a cost, and that cost is misery. And so I guess it's just about how much tolerance for misery does Adrian or Shams or any of these people have. Mm. I will. I want to add this note about Jay Glazer, and I say this respectfully. We know he's moved away kind of from the news breaking thing and is a bit more of a personality. And so Jay has a pretty good life. Uh, <laughs> he has fun. <laughs> let, let me take a break uh, and pay some bills. And then I want to return and talk about LeBron James, because you've written some really fascinating stuff about him as well. Uh, but let me tell you about my go-to dop. As most of you know, I came down with a mild case of COVID recently. Taking some time off to heal allowed me to reflect on my health. I've talked about the health changes I've made this past year, but one of my new favorites is my go-to doc. Dot com. This latest strain of COVID, the Omicron variant, is milder, but I know many people who had a really rough time of it. High-risk patients need meds on hand so they can start treatment fast, and low-risk patients often benefit from off-label meds because they can prevent long-haul COVID, which can be debilitating. Here are three reasons that I love Dr. Saeed Hader at my go-to doc. Dot com. One, he's a COVID expert. This is all he does, and he's treated over 40,000 patients with zero deaths. Two, you can register and ask questions for free. Three, 
They connect you to pharmacies that ship you a full 28 doses of ivermectin for less than $150. My go-to doc, Dot com is your go-to source for COVID-19. I encourage you to check them out today. That's mygotodoc.com. All right, let's return to Ethan Strauss. And, and with the rest of our time, Ethan, I, would, I want to talk a little <clears throat> LeBron James. I reread the story I read in December. Uh, I reread it this morning. And, and I, I love the argument that you made in terms of tying it to LeBron and his lack of self-awareness and the commercials that he keeps putting out that take himself very seriously. They don't connect. They don't put him in a good light. He's got this crazed pursuit of trying to cast himself as the Muhammad Ali of this era. I think he thought that was the path to surpassing Michael Jordan because he was never going to win the number of rings. He's not me. He's never going to be as great as Michael Jordan. But if he could add this off-court stuff, build a school, build that reputation, then he could. Hey, I'm the Muhammad Ali of of this era. I'm the greatest. I'm better than Michael Jordan. That's what I. And and anyway, I'll let you elaborate from there. No, I think that's true. And, you know, some of the momentum from that, people say, came from Lynn Merritt at Nike, who is one of the biggest NBA power figures that uh, the average fan has never heard of. Uh, He's a big deal. And he rose alongside LeBron. And I think Windhorse has written that LeBron looks at him almost like a father figure. So if Lynn Merritt says this is a good strategy, if he did say that, then that's going to weigh heavily on LeBron. But I think the miscalculation was this. Now, You know, this is something that conservatives uh, and many of them obviously, you know, watch your program, something they might not want to admit. But what Colin Kaepernick did was indeed brave. You know, you can criticize the motivations, you can criticize the content, but it was a risk. And yes, he got a ton of money from Nike in the end. And it's easy to say, oh, man, you know, some risk he took. Look at all the money he got. It wasn't obvious at the time he did that with his protest. The NFL is very much a nail that sticks down, a nail that sticks out, hammer down type of league. You know, if you're stepping out of line, uh, the NFL doesn't like that. So at a certain level, people respected the risk that Kaepernick took. And from what I hear, LeBron observed that and thought, well, I can do that and I can that get that kind of credit. But the problem is that LeBron's not taking any risk and everybody understands that LeBron's not taking any risk. His aim, his pursuit is to become a billionaire. That's a pretty cool goal to have. I mean, I would like to have that goal. That sounds pretty nice. Um, but everybody gets that if that's the goal, then what are you really giving up to pursue it? And just saying similar slogans to a Colin Kaepernick is not the same thing as actually uh, risking your job. I mean, everybody understands it, even if nobody's saying it. So it doesn't resonate. It's not really the personality aspect of him that people liked, which is that he was he was fun and he was funny and he's got a charisma to him. And then it gets the apotheosis of it is uh, him making this tearjerker of an ad and the reveal at the end is Ruffles potato chips. I mean, it's a parody. It's a satire. It's what happens when nobody around you is telling you that something looks silly. And I also just think that it's revealing of why people 
don't like social justice, an underrated aspect of it in the media. Uh, not social justice. They like the idea of social justice, but there is a set of incentives that nobody admits to, which is that cynics and sociopaths use it towards their own ends. And those incentives exist and everybody sees it, but nobody says it. And even if they don't have the language to articulate it, people know it. They know it. When they watch the ad, they know that LeBron James is using these fraught issues and these serious issues to advance himself as a businessman and as a business entity. It doesn't work. And frankly, I think it speaks well of the public that it doesn't. I want to just give our audience a taste of what you're talking about. We put a little compilation of some of these commercials together, and then I'm going to ask you a follow-up question. P -p Play the video. We're all made of different things. Bridges that make us who we are. Mold us. Now these things, we can keep them hidden away. We can let them defeat us, or we can embrace them to push myself to the limit, to tell stories and empower all creators, to uplift communities so that every kid has a chance to achieve their dreams, and also keep up with my own kids. We always hear about an athlete's humble beginnings. They emerge from poverty or tragedy to beat the odds. They're supposed to be the stories of determination that capture the American dream. To pave the way for others. To speak when something needs to be said. To make a difference any way you can. And build things no one else will. Oh, man. <laughs> See, <laughs> the issue with LeBron is he's constantly making a documentary about himself. And yeah. documentaries don't sell products. Again, that whole thing at the front about ridges, that, that was about potato chips. And I'm like, you can't sell potato chips while making a documentary <laughs> about yourself. But no. When I, you said something about Colin Kaepernick earlier, and I don't want to debate you about Kaepernick, but I will say this. I don't think he had enough common sense to understand what he was doing and how big it was. Uh, and so he just kind of fell into it. And a lot of what I see from LeBron, a lot easier for me to say than you, uh, is I just don't think LeBron's very smart. And that's why, again, he, he keeps making documentaries about himself. Look how powerful and uh, intense and how caring I am. Again, you can show better than you can tell, but he's insecure, I think. And that's, I think at one point you had some comments in your piece about LeBron reading the first page of all these great books and, and you know, not, and he got, called out or accidentally called out by Taylor Rooks about the autobiography of Malcolm X. And we, you know, we found out he hadn't really read the book. I just, I guess this leads to my, I just don't think LeBron is that smart. I think he's had some good handlers around him at Nike that have helped him. Uh, and, and you made a really powerful point at the end about 
his marketing and how maybe he hasn't maximized because everybody spends all their time managing LeBron rather than look having trying to execute some kind of vision yeah. as it relates to LeBron. Yeah, I mean, nobody can tell him anything. He's the biggest guy at Nike, and sometimes the division of labor benefits you. Um, you're not taking on things that you're not good at, for instance. But you shouldn't need to be smart to be able to market yourself. There's something else going on here, which is that he's reflecting what is seen on Twitter, what the media claims to like, back at them. So it should work in theory, right? I think we see this with the mismanagement of Giannis Antetokounmpo's reputation. You know, the guy who just won the championship and the MVP for the Milwaukee Bucks. Some of your listeners slash viewers might not have heard of him because I think that uh, he has been marketed poorly by Nike. Now, how has he been marketed? He's been marketed through the lens of what professional class people and corporations think is important and meaningful. They hammer you over the head with, he's an immigrant. He came from struggle. He came from humble beginnings. A lot of the notes that you hear LeBron singing in his advertisements. Now, that's all true, and it's an incredible story. And if you want to read a book about Giannis Antetokounmpo, uh, there's a great one that was written by uh, Mirren Fader, but that's not how you market basketball players to the public, and that's not what the public sees when they see Giannis, a seven-foot guy who can jump out of the gym. Nobody is watching that guy and going, oh my God, how did he make it to the NBA? This is a miracle. No. If they're marketing him properly, they're honing in on how Giannis is fun, he's real, he's a hard worker, and you make ads that are fun. In the 1990s, I know it sounds crazy, but corporations actually made advertisements that were fun. Nike made advertisements that were funny. Penny Hardaway shoes were you know, advertised with a Chris Rock narrated puppet, and it was hilarious. But they're always trying to overthink it, and they're trying to recapitulate whatever lessons they learned in their universities and say them through the mouths of the athletes, and the public doesn't feel it. How much of that, the, the serious tone, the, oh, and, and particularly as it relates to LeBron, the, the struggle that I overcame, how much of that can be related to China and, mm. and, and Nike getting its marketing in line with what China wants? And, and to me, China and Nike are, you know, wedded at the hip and, and you know, portraying America as fun and a place where black people are really happy, particularly these athletes that are making billions of dollars, is not what China wants. Yeah, I don't know how it influences the marketing, but it's certainly influenced LeBron's decline in popularity. And I don't think media really reckons with that or admits that or says it should be so. Because if you're looking at what was the first big decline in NBA viewership, you know, maybe correlations and causation, but it followed LeBron James lambasting Daryl Morey for speaking out on Hong Kong and saying that, you know, there are limits to free speech or whatever he said that came off uh, very poorly. And I think that was a moment. It was an international story. It was all over the news. And all of a sudden, Americans are watching LeBron James, whose appeal is somewhat rooted in that he is a Midwestern American scolding, scolding somebody in the NBA for his free speech, criticizing China, which is an adversary of ours. So 
I, when I look at the China situation, I almost look at it less as what Nike is up to and more that it is the issue that has the biggest chasm between public opinion and elite opinion. When Gallup poll asks people how they feel about China, 79% of Americans have a negative opinion. Where are you seeing that reflected anywhere outside of maybe conservative media? Where are you seeing people say, hey, China kind of at fault for this whole COVID situation that's made things miserable for two years and killed, I don't know, however many, maybe a million Americans when it gets all told to say nothing of what's happened outside uh, in the broader world. Nobody is really saying this. So I think what ends up happening is that the people who suck up to China in the public eye, they make themselves very unpopular to the broader American public, and they can't even see that because nobody in their circles thinks there's anything wrong with that. Nobody in their circles thinks anybody's mad at it. But it turns out that for the average American, it, yeah, they do take offense. The average American, I think, is a little more nationalistic than the average person in media and the average person at the top of these boards and these corporations. I want to jump to another point that I, I found fascinating. Uh, I think I've well, maybe others have said it, but I don't think they've said it as well as you did in this piece. Uh, the ghost of Kobe Bryant has basically diminished LeBron James and that putting that Lakers uniform on may have been the final straw in the death of LeBron's chase of Michael Jordan. Hmm. Yeah, it's very Godfather Part 3. There's something off about it, seeing LeBron in the Laker jersey. And it's funny, you know, maybe this is the through line of people, they run a play that makes sense in theory, you know, whether it's Adam Silver saying we're going to use Twitter to make the NBA popular, it, it makes sense in theory. Um, Kevin Durant, I'm going to go to the Warriors and people are going to respect me because I'm going to win championships and they're going to love me like they did for LeBron James in Miami to a degree. That makes sense in theory. LeBron goes, I'm going to go to the most popular team, the biggest brand. I'm going to get more championships. I'm going to make movies. And it makes sense in theory. But in reality, it's yet another thing that is correlated with this crazy situation where the NBA has lost half its TV viewership over the last eight years. And people aren't really feeling it. Um, to use a quote that uh, Draymond Green once yelled at, at Paul Pierce during his retirement tour, uh, you ain't Kobe. They don't love you like that. That's certainly the case in L.A. Those L.A. fans might appreciate winning a game, might appreciate winning a bubble championship, but they don't love LeBron like they love Kobe. And there's just something about it that just doesn't work. And it's ineffable. You can't really completely explain it till you see it. But it just doesn't work. It's awkward. It's weird. And like you said, uh, Kobe hangs over the situation to a degree. I want to end on this note. Uh, Rich Paul, you, you mentioned, uh, I got two different Rich Paul questions. Because one, I should have asked you during the Adrian Wojnarowski conversation. And then I got a second one that's about LeBron. So I'm going to go back to the Adrian Wojnarowski conversation. When I, I was reading your story about Adrian, I just kept thinking like, He's losing, Adrian is, losing the long war with Rich Paul. As mm. Rich Paul and that agency ascends and Rich Paul's power uh, and, and influence over the league continues to climb, Adrian Wojnarowski falls. 
Adrian was a Kobe guy. He was an anti-LeBron guy. Uh, Rich Paul is not on board with Adrian Wojnarowski. Uh, this is one of Rich Paul's great accomplishments in my mind. He's bringing down Adrian Wojnarowski. I think there could have been an argument for that, but it's been complicated by a guy named Andy Miller and agent named Andy Miller getting brought in to run a lot of clutch because Rich Paul has ascended to such a height that, I mean, he doesn't want to want to be day to day, just like being a beat writer is a grind, just like being a newsbreaker is a grind. Being an agent is a hell of a grind. I mean, people don't like it. Bob Myers, uh, the Warriors GM, was happy to leave being an agent to be a GM, which is another kind of stressful job, but it, it's not as bad as being an agent. Agent, you're constantly predator, but you're constantly prey. People are trying to steal your clients. You have to be paranoid about it, monitor everybody in their situation. I don't think Rich Paul wants to get involved to that degree. So it's an opening for Adrian because he's brought along a guy named Andy Miller, who is a Wojnarowski confidant. Uh, Miller uh, has run afoul, I think, uh, I don't know if I would say the law, but certainly of the NCAA. Uh, he, I don't believe, is allowed to represent players at this point, but can represent coaches. But nobody believes that these lines are adhered to. So, yeah, in the broad sweep, there's an element of maybe he loses the war to Rich Paul, but it's all business, man. And, you know, there's an opening for uh, facilitation. Uh, and Wojnarowski has certainly broken Laker news before. So I don't I think it's a little bit confounded by the Andy Miller introduction. We are getting deep NBA for some of your listeners who might wonder what the hell we're talking about right now. I still got sports fans, Ethan. Don't don't worry, they haven't all abandoned me. But people uh, who we'll know who Andy this... Miller is, <laughs> well, that's, that's they'll go cut. figure it out. That's what Google's for. It answers all the questions. Uh, Rich Paul, you, I, th- I think you talked about it in the LeBron article. Uh, the thing I actually respect the most about LeBron is the way that he empowered Rich Paul, Maverick Carter. Uh, and the guys that he has stayed loyal to. For some reason, I can't think of the the guy that basically is his personal assistant uh, that's been with him his, his most of his life. But I think there could be an argument made that while he did what was best for his friends, and even though they're having a tremendous amount of success, LeBron did sacrifice things along the way. And because of having to allow these guys to grow into their positions. And so I I think there's a set of agents more experienced. They're like, yeah, Rich and them, they're on top now. And that's all thanks to LeBron James and his incredible physical gifts and talent. But if he had had the proper help along the way, LeBron would probably be further down the road than he is even now. But, but, I can't even use that as a strong criticism of LeBron just because he uplifted the people closest to him, put them in position, and and his talent is so immense that if he had to make some sacrifice uh, for his own professional or image, whatever, it was well worth it because he empowered the people that he cares about. And beyond that, there is an aspect of business brilliance to it. I mean, Clutch, as an agency, 
saw something that other people didn't see. Yeah, Rich Paul might have screwed up the Ben Simmons situation, but all told, Clutch has been a tremendous success. I mean, not only do you get to do something that's very, frankly fairly shady, but I guess there are no rules and you break them at at your peril uh, by leveraging LeBron James as a player while LeBron runs a player agency. But damn, if it didn't work, and not only did it work, but it's cool. You know, they they perceive that players want to be associated with an agency like a brand. These agencies weren't brands, right? There was nothing cool about being with Wasserman. There's nothing cool about being with, I mean, I don't know, Relativity, whatever, Mark Bartlestein. There's nothing cool about it. See, I can say this because I have a Jewish last name. You know, there's nothing cool about us, right? Uh, Rich Paul, <laughs> cool. Brand it. Brand it like a luxury item. You know, I hear about players wanting to join Clutch and they're asked, hey, you know, why do you want to join Clutch? And they go, I don't know. I mean, I, they're just going to introduce me to some cool people. Uh, that was a business opportunity that was seized upon. And so maybe some of these guys LeBron James has empowered have their flaws. Maybe it hasn't worked out for his own reputation, but they weren't on to nothing, I guess is what I'm saying. There was something there uh, that was made use of. Ethan, thank you so much for your time. Uh, Anybody that knows me knows that I'm very conservative with my praise. Uh, Most people know I can't stand young people. (laughs) I say that jokingly. Man, you're brilliant. Uh, I mean, everything that I've read, you just backed up in words. uh, and, and, And... you know, it, this isn't even about writing. It's the ability to think and discern and connect dots. It's so rare in our business, and you have all of that uh, in abundance. Uh, t- t- why? I got one more. Why did you go off on your own? Why? Why did mm. you leave the comfort of mainstream sports media? I just felt like it was getting harder and harder to make obvious observations, frankly. And some of that was political, but some of it was just industry. Uh, the stuff we're talking about with the conflicts of interest with uh, the player agencies and how the reporters are reporting on players and they're represented by the same agents. I mean, that's crazy. And they don't disclose it. I, I know it's sports and it's not the greatest scandal in the world, but it's fundamentally dishonest. So I just wanted to go to a place where I felt like I could make those observations. And yes, the cultural aspect as well. It felt as though there was such a narrow Overton window in sports, which presents a tremendous market inefficiency, I believe, because most sports fans don't subscribe to that narrowness and belief that every issue needs to reify a particular view of the world that so many in media believe. So I just thought it would work and I wanted to be free and I just wanted to write whatever was interesting and let the audience propel me uh, to some new creative pathways. So it's all worked out and I'm happy to say it's going great. And Jason, thanks for making me feel young. You know, that's really big. I I appreciate you making me feel young today. You're definitely young. You look 15. Uh, Tell your parents they did a great job. Have a great weekend. Thank you, Ethan. All right. Thanks, uh, Jason. I hear tomorrow playing. That means we'll see you. Well, we won't see you tomorrow. We'll see you on Monday. Sitting on the corner, never been alone. I'll break my back for freedom. Bless, we are living, get back. We are receiving all the seed when we all want to be free. We want freedom. I just want, I want to be, I just want, I want to be, I just want, I want to be.
just want 